0: And friends, as we uh, continue in worship here this morning, we're going to uh, do what has been our practice throughout uh, this fall, and we're going to be praying for uh, the young people, the young disciples in our congregation as they uh, participate here in worship, but also as they participate in East Sunday School. So I invite you at home right now to join me in in taking your hands and kind of raising those towards the screen just as a symbolic gesture uh, as we participate together in praying for God's blessing for them, as well as our own understanding of the scripture today. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you uh, again uh, for life. Thank you for young lives as we celebrate uh, once more your calling from generation to generation. And so for the young people of this congregation, the young disciples, uh, we're grateful uh, for them to be here in worship, for us to participate together in the things that we can learn together uh, in your word, but also from each other. Um, So Lord, we pray for your blessing to be on, on the young people of this congregation as they are here in worship, but also in East Sunday School today. Uh, Lord, may your spirit uh, move in them in such a way that they might understand uh, the words they hear, and in understanding they might live those faithfully. And that's our prayer as well today, Lord, that you would use this word, uh, this scripture this morning, to speak to us, to renew us, uh, to regenerate us once more, to prepare us for the journey uh, ahead, whatever might lie ahead in, the, in this next day, week or years ahead, Lord, that we might be prepared, and so that we too might live faithfully. in praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, this season I'm wearing three different types of glasses. If you participate in a Zoom call with me, you'll see that I oftentimes am wearing glasses, but if you just talk to me in person, you probably don't see me wearing glasses at all. Um, Those glasses are, what I'm told, are blue light filtering glasses. They're designed uh, so that you don't get a significant eye strain from using computers. I don't know if they work or not, um, but I, I, I wear them and I trust that they're protecting me from something that I cannot see, a danger that I'm somehow not aware of. Recently, I was at a a light show, a Christmas light show, and uh, so I'm wearing a second pair of glasses, and it's these elf glasses, maybe you have a pair of these, or something like them, you put them on, and when you look at lights, or even as the candles right now, there's little elves that appear in the light. Uh, If you have not seen these, and this year is the first time that I've ever seen something like this, and they come in different versions, snowflakes, and I think I have a snowman one at home, Um, but these help you to see something that's not actually really there. Uh, They superimpose over the top of that light uh, an altogether different picture. And then during sermons and when I'm reading, you'll see me don my reading glasses, and I'll put them on right now, as a matter of fact. Um, And these glasses are designed, like anybody who wears glasses or readers, uh, they're designed to help us to see something that we can't see, but which is actually there. So we come to our text today today. Uh, my prayer is not that we all start wearing readers or that we all have to start wearing glasses, uh, but my prayer is that God would help us to see what's really there. I think that's what this passage is, is speaking to us in, in sharing uh, to God's people, both in the first century, but also here in the 21st century, to help us see the way things really are. How great would it be if we could see in real time the way things are, to see here in the present I imagine that's how Ebenezer Scrooge felt uh, in stave three, or the, what we might call the third chapter, but the way they're lined out in Dickens' writings is stave three. In that third stave, it's when he is led by the ghost of Christmas present, and it's at that moment that he begins to recognize just how despicable he had become as he's shown things in the present world that are a direct result of his action or inaction. This knowing, this ability to possess a sense that we could change or even more that we can become a person of consequence. What a gift that would be uh, to be able to do that in real time in the present, but that's, that's not life. It's not a luxury that's often afforded to us. We live in a real time, like I said, and at a speed, or at least the speed that we live at, sometimes outpaces our better judgment. Today is a gift is the way the saying goes. That's why they call it the present. Well, as recipients of this great gift, how then should we live? How then should you and I live uh, in light of that gift? And even more so, how should we live as recipients of new life in Christ? Our text this morning offers a few suggestions. And to be honest, they're not really suggestions. Uh, They're listed as admonitions. Admonitions. But before we go there, let's uh, take a peek at who this audience is uh, that's being addressed here. The original audience, uh, like us, they lived in real time. And if you read in Acts chapter 17, you actually get a, a great sense of just how real their experience was. It's there in Acts 17 that we find Jesus giving witness to Jesus in the synagogue. He's uh, preaching in that, in that uh, synagogue at Thessalonica. And, and while he's preaching there, he gets uh, mixed reviews. It says uh, in that text that some were persuaded to join Paul and Silas, and it actually notes that uh, quite a few devout uh, Greeks and, and not a few of the leading women there in the community actually joined uh, the church at that moment. They uh, were receptive to the gospel, uh, and, and so they joined. They uh, enter into Paul's ministry, and, and they begin uh, to grow as early disciples there. But in verse 5, there's a different response that comes from others who are described as being Jealous. So jealous are they of the work uh, that's being done there, of this mission uh, work of Paul and Silas, that they decide that they're going to form a mob. And the text actually says that they uh, round up some ruffians from the marketplace, and they go around uh, kind of doing this vigilante search uh, for Paul and Silas. And they start attacking anyone associated uh, with these two. And actually they attack anybody who's associated with the Jesus movement at this time. There's, there's one particular fellow who's actually said to be, have been dragged out of his house by this mob and he's uh, led to the authorities where he's accused of being at odds with Roman power. So just to get an idea of just, this is not, uh, this is probably not your experience of quote unquote going to church, right? This is, this is a different type of uh, thing than we see uh, in our own religious experience. Uh, who would sign up for that, right? Who would sign up for that? That seems kind of tough. Under those circumstances, would you join a movement that you knew uh, a mob might be coming to get you to drag you out of your house? And of course, of those who do sign up, who would stay? Why would you you stay as part of something like that when you have so much to lose there? Well, according to Paul, and now here in 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 1, verse 6, uh, these people, this church stayed says there in verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord. Now when Paul says imitators of us and the Lord, he's talking about persecution. Remember that Paul and, and uh, his associates weren't immune to persecution and suffering. And of course, uh, Jesus as there's a large cross behind me. There's a cross, crosses emblazoned here on the stole. Uh, we're reminded that Jesus was no stranger to suffering either. He became imitators of us and of the Lord. It says, for in spite of persecution, received the word with joy. They received the gospel with joy, and that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. With joy. Let that sink in for a moment. Let that just sink for a second. We, we light a pink candle, and we talk about, we talk about joy and, and things, uh, similar words like gladness. But here's a community that receives the gospel initially with joy in the midst of real-time darkness. We light a pink candle again to bring light into darkness. These folks are living in literal darkness. The old expression, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, an expression that's uh, been assigned to Tertullian and there's been all kinds of interpretations about what that line has said and what it actually says, but let's go with the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. That sounds poetic. That's, a, that's kind of a poetic sounding thing and it may hold uh, second generation truth uh, to it, but in real time, in that first generation, when you are the blood, when it's your blood that's being shed at that point, uh, we know that that assault can fray but that salt can unravel a community think of the unrest that exists in the middle east even in in historic christian communities like bethlehem where unrest and persecution has caused uh, even those communities uh, to uh, cease to be uh, christian large communities of christians have moved out or think about places in iraq where persecution uh, existed because during the wartime and stuff and how christians uh, would have to move from those places because of, of persecution and suffering. We, we know what that looks like in our, even in our modern world, how those communities can unravel, become frayed during those seasons. The church of Thessalonica here, that same church that received the word with joy, is in danger of that right now, as Paul writes. They're in danger of that experience. When life turns sideways, we know that confidence erodes and, and so does one's faith. Uh, you don't have to be undergoing active act of persecution, to know the truth of that. You receive a diagnosis, one that's uh, a difficulty here, one that, that speaks to your mortality, one that numbers your days. How easy one's faith can be frayed and broken, how quickly one's uh, convictions and commitments uh, can move to the wayside. So Paul writes to help get this church, and I say this church, I'm talking about the first century church, but also the 21st century church. He writes this here in 1 Thessalonians to get the church back on track. and He does so here with a series uh, that Carla works, actually refers to as easy to remember admonitions that in reality are hard to follow, right? Easy to remember, but in reality are hard to follow. It's easier in Greek, of course, because the language that's under opinion, what we have here in our translation, has a repetition of the sound that's kind of the P sound, and you'll see that in the first or second word of each of these different admonitions. In fact, there are some uh, modern commentators that picked up this same type of theme when they subtitled 1 uh, Thessalonians in their survey. They called it uh, this, this book that is um, about perseverance, purity, and preparedness, until the parousia. So they kind of picked up that P sound in their subtitle. But what do these actually say? What do these admonitions say? Well, the first one's this, in verse 16, we're to rejoice always. Now, joy is a key theme in the Christian life. We actually know that it's identified in the fruit of the Spirit. If you go to Galatians chapter 5, you'll see it listed there uh, right near the beginning of that fruit of the Spirit. Uh, the gospels themselves talk about joy as the the response of people who are encountering the gospel or discover something about the kingdom matthew actually plays this out uh in his gospel a couple times right near the beginning it's the response of the magi uh, when they find the star it says joy is that, that same word jews there also the parable in matthew 13 of the one who finds treasure hidden in a field so it talks about responses again to the kingdom to the gospel uh, The person's response is one of joy well, early in this letter uh, to the church at Thessalonica, uh, Paul notes that the church's reception of the gospel, even amidst persecution, like we've already said, was with joy. And what's more, that joy was inspired by the Holy Spirit. So rejoicing always is, is not about mustering up something from our own limited resources. It's rather a quality that naturally arises, and we might put in here, supernaturally arises. Uh, as a result of what God has achieved for us in Christ, both today and for the future. It's important for us to remember that. It's important for us to keep that in our hearts and mind. Uh, but also, the reason to re- it's reason itself to rejoice, knowing that God provides that. The one who's faithful provides for those of us who are not always faithful. As joy always people see God's salvation, as we see that in our lives, both now and coming, it helps us amidst the trouble of the day. The second admonition is this, uh, and it goes right there with this rejoicing always, is that we're supposed to pray without ceasing, and that's in verse 17. Well, sometimes this feels uh, more like the headline or the giant banner you'd put up for a prayer vigil. I've actually seen this uh, put up as the advertisement for why you need to participate in the 24-hour prayer vigil, uh, if you've ever been part of one of those. We're supposed to pray without ceasing. Um, And to think of the idea of uh, literally praying Uh, for 24 hours, Uh, for most folks, I think that ends up uh, serving as a condemning voice for our own hurried or missing prayer life. I think it speaks to us that that interpretation uh, really doesn't doesn't help us get closer to maybe what God has in mind for us here. I think Paul is trying to say something different here. Instead, it's clear throughout Paul's writings that prayer was important. I think we need to recognize that was an important part of his ministry and important part of his life and this letter is no exception Uh, you know how even how he begins the letter in verse 3 of chapter 1 we always give thanks to God for all of you and mention you in our prayers right so it's very much part of his ministry uh, very much part of his leadership but he doesn't intend for that to be exclusive to himself Uh, he actually uh, is not looking for this to be exclusive even to a prayer team he doesn't just name you know this group over here is going to do all the praying But instead, he actually invites his hearers to join in this important aspect of the Christian life. Both here, pray without ceasing, of course, but immediately following our section here in verse 25, he's going to say, Beloved, pray for us. And so the hearers of this letter uh, are to be ones who participate in that prayer. The ministry of prayer is but one more way that these Paul imitators, again, a theme that's found throughout Paul's ministry and also here in 1 Thessalonians, can fashion their lives as disciples after the lead of this apostle. But without ceasing, let's come back to that. Without ceasing, that seems a little tough. Uh, That one's going to be a little bit more challenging. It seems impractical, doesn't it? Doesn't that seem impractical? Not to mention incredibly disconnecting from community and disconnecting from our daily responsibilities. How does one keep her job if she's praying without ceasing? How does one keep his spouse if he's praying without ceasing? Certainly, religious orders have been established over the years to live into this this, uh, ideal, this sense of praying all the time. Orders that literally pray, they organize themselves to pray all the time, uh, 24-7, 365. And of course, uh, this sense of praying around the clock, like I've already mentioned, uh, is, is one that local churches oftentimes will set up for a special occasion, uh, in preparation for a season or, or something in the life of that church. There's not too few websites either that give advice on how to be one who prays without ceasing. I looked at several uh, this week. But it might be helpful here to remind ourselves that Paul's not living in an imaginary world. All right? The person who's writing this is not in some imaginary world. He understands the demands of everyday life. We hear of Paul's work uh, to make money. We hear of his travel with mission endeavors we hear of his friendships that he's kept and maintained we know of his education so this person understands the demands of the everyday world of real life and so taking this into account along with the context of this letter and the surrounding admonitions what is being advanced here seems to be a sense that we are to be a praying people in all seasons in the good in the bad and in the ugly that Christians are called to be praying no matter what comes our way. There's a sense here that it's the quality of who we are as people. It's not a quantity question. It's about an all-seasons type question, living in that place. And so we look to cultivate a life that's a life of prayer that prepares us for praying, even when we feel like we shouldn't be praying or we can't pray. We're called once more to that. That makes a whole lot more sense when you think about what these Thessalonians were facing. These were people uh, who had seen persecution. These were people who could name the martyrs. They knew them. They were their friends. They were their family. They could name those who had been abused because of the faith. They could see people die who were part of their congregation. And they had an understanding that Christ was coming back soon, imminently, that, that return. And, and now they were wondering, but when? I thought that was going to happen. Maybe I was wrong. Their seasons had gone up and down and sideways and over and out. And Paul reminds them that they're to be a praying people, just as much as they're to be a rejoicing person in all seasons. And so when we pray, we see in verse 18, the third admonition here, we're to give thanks in all circumstances. The reader having been charged to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and now to give thanks in all circumstances. This giving thanks requires a kind of vision, requires an ability to see uh, the larger story amidst the present predicament. You're not going to give thanks in all circumstances if you can't see past the mud and the muck. It doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, it doesn't mean that we pretend like it's not there, but it's the ability to see something bigger. This ability to see even amidst persecution and suffering. And again, the person who writes this is not immune to those things. This is a person who's been beat up. This is a person who's been run out of town. This is a person who's had threats against their life because of the gospel. And writes to a community that understands those things all too well. But again, remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. The same person who's had these experiences, the same person calling you and to me to live into a place where we can be the rejoicing always type, the folks that pray without ceasing, the folks that give thanks in all circumstances, writes, all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Paul could see a bigger story. He knew in Christ there was something bigger going on, that God had not abdicated the throne, so to speak, that the salvation project had not come to an end. There's always reason to give thanks. Why? Because I know my Redeemer lives. Praise, intercession, and thanksgiving are what Paul calls for in these three. And he anchors them with a very particular line. He says, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. In other words, this is the kind of people that God has called you and and me to be. That this is how we are called to live. This is the kind of activity that we are to be up to. This is what we're to be about. He uses that similar language of this, this same kind of anchor about God's will uh, for your life. He actually does that in chapter 4, uh, verse 3, when he's talking about ethical behavior. And you'll note there that when he goes back there, he says uh, something that kind of speaks to us about the seriousness that he has in mind for uh, admonitions that are connected with the will of God. He says there, whoever rejects this rejects not human authority, but God. So our three admonitions here, we might assume because of Paul's use earlier, do not appear to be optional expressions in the Christian life either. Well, beginning in verse 19, Paul's going to transition to an additional set of admonitions. But this time he moves to the church as a whole. He looks at not necessarily our our responses to God, uh, but our collected responses to one another in worship. It's helpful at this point for us to note that the larger section that this passage falls in is one that talks about uh, peace and trying to uh, have this sense of, uh, of peace established within the community. Uh, it makes a lot of sense when you see uh, verse 12, it says, uh, respect those who labor among you, right? That's going to be a, a sense of trying to appeal to the peace of that community, or even more directly when he says in verse 13, be at peace among yourselves, right? So you get that sense that here's what this, is, this larger theme is at. So it's, it's no wonder that he would move to a section here to say, here's some steps on how We can live at peace together as a community. Of course, there's a popular notion in in our own country that adversity brings a community together. How many sports films have that as the central theme? Particularly football and basketball films uh, speak about some kind of adversity. The team gets together in the locker room. There's some sort of conversation or or some critical moment uh, in in the screenplay. And all of a sudden, everybody's on the same page and they win the state title, right? Isn't that how those movies all... They go they, they go on to uh, work out their differences in a two-hour period, and they're ready to go. But again, uh, that's a movie. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes that happens. But it's just as true that adversity can pull a community apart. How many sports teams have gone on to have 0 and 16 seasons because of adversity and struggle? And Paul's desire here, again, is not that the community would be fractured, but instead to be built up. He uses uh, words in verse 14 of admonishing idlers, encouraging the faint-hearted, helping the weak, being patient with all. So these are, these are building up type terms, building up that community and building up the persons in that community. So that speaks to his heart here. These are the taxa- tasks of the church in all seasons. Uh, this is who we're to be collectively, communally. But in times of trouble, I imagine that we might all be aware of in some aspect of our own personal life together, that our care for one another oftentimes suffers in those moments. And so it's helpful to have this type of instruction that Paul gives here. So here's the thing. What's going on in this text? Well, the first thing that we see here is there seems to be some sort of suppressing of what would be called charismata, or those gifts of the Spirit. Uh, And Paul's speaking to them, and he's probably speaking about tongues or prophecy. We see that in 1 Corinthians. Uh, We also see that uh, here within the 1 Thessalonians, a total but there's something in the community where they're, they're stopping this. They're saying, we, we, need to, we need to hold these things back. We need to restrain these things. And Paul says to them, wait, 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 wait. Remember the Holy Spirit is poured out on all people. Joel 2, Acts chapter 2. To hold back on the Spirit in a lot of ways is to communicate something far different than God's salvation being poured out. Instead of releasing that salvation, we're trying to hold it back like a dam holds back a river. And so he says to them, this community needs to allow the spirit to speak. And you see that in the idea about prophecy. But it doesn't mean that spiritual gifts can't be abused. It doesn't mean that spiritual elites could step up here and start demanding certain things. And so here are the careful admonitions that Paul offers for us to set the tone within the community. We're to, in verse 21, we're to test everything. Of course, going back to Acts 17... Thessalonica, immediately following that experience, there's a group of people from Berea who are described as having been more receptive than those in Thessalonica. For they welcomed the message very eagerly. And we know that Thessalonica, they welcomed the message with joy. But here's the difference. The Bereans examined the scriptures every day to see whether these things were so. They were a people that were testing everything and they used the scripture to do that. And Paul's next two admonitions are going to stem from that, from what you learn when you test the scriptures. Hold fast to what is good and abstain from every form of evil. As you test those things, make sure that you hold on to what is good. But when you come across what is evil, we're to abstain from those things. Embracing the evil fractures the community. Embracing the good brings people together. It offers a deeper wider sense of love in Christian community. It's the appropriate response to faith. So how do we become those people? How do we become these people in all seasons that rejoice? People who give thanksgiving. People who pray. How do we become those uh, people who are able to test everything, to hold on to what's good and abstain from what's evil? How do we become that person? If We take it to an individual expression here. Well, look at what Paul says in the text, what he prays for them in verse 23. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. To be at peace among yourselves requires the work of the God of peace who makes us holy. Did you think for a moment that it was going to be all up to us? Do you think that was something we would be able to accomplish in our own efforts? Those were a lot of admonitions. But it's God's gracious action that gets us there. That gets us to that place. Paul knew this. And so did Augustine, who you might remember famously prayed, Give me the grace, O Lord, to do as you command. And command me to do what you will, O holy God. When your commands are obeyed, It is from you that we receive the power to obey them. Help us, Lord, to see. Like those different glasses that I put on throughout the season, give me a new set of glasses. Help me to see you. Help me to see that you're at work in my life. Help me to see that you're present here, even in the midst of the challenges and struggles of today and to see you again tomorrow with whatever might come at that moment. Our prayer this morning is also our third stave of our own Advent carol. Our prayer is the matching prayer from Augustine that we might have the power to obey God's commands, that we might not only have that power, that we might be faithful in that. Open our eyes, Lord, help us to see that by your grace We are being made ready, that this is really happening now, that God is really at work among us, knowing that God is faithful. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Friends, let us pray together. Lord, we thank you on this day once more for your word, that you continue to speak a good word to us in our hearts and our minds that you're transforming people day by day, and you're transforming this community. Help us, Lord, to to really embrace what is good. Lord, help us to appropriately uh, test everything, to measure it by your word. Lord, help us to be those people that rejoice always, that pray without ceasing, that give thanksgiving in all seasons, in the good, the bad, and the ugly. Lord, we pray knowing that it's you who are faithful who empowers us to be able to do these things. Holy Spirit, give us the power to live faithful lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, over the next couple minutes, we're going to begin preparing the...